Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, Australian politics is still in a mess. So I turn to Stephen Conroy, the former Minister for Communications in the Labor government and Sky News contributor now, to find out whether he thinks Malcolm Turnbull can stick around. And the answer is, it depends when the election is, because it might be quite soon, given the way things are going. And if so, then he probably can stand at the election. But if it takes too long, he maybe he won't. But it is worth listening to Stephen Conroy's insights. On the markets, it's Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, to look at how the market's performing and whether the Australian market in particular is expensive or cheap. Cameron Kusher, the Head of Research at CoreLogic, looks at the property market and in particular at clearance rates, which are dropping in Sydney. And also distinguished Professor Mary Ann Williams, who's an expert on artificial intelligence and currently visiting Stanford University in California, gives us a bit of an update as to what's going on in the world of AI. I'm joined now by Stephen Conroy, the former communications minister in the Labor government and also now a contributor to Sky. G'day, Stephen. Thanks for joining me. Great to talk to you again, Alan. Now, uh, it'd be a great time to be in opposition at the moment, one feels. Um, do you think that uh, Turnbull personally will survive as Prime Minister until the next election? Well, that depends on when we're defining as the next election. The thing I think the challenge he faces right now is that next week or early the week after, every MP has to put on the table their genealogy, in effect. They've got to demonstrate that they're an Australian citizen only. Uh, and there is many rumours that there are two or three Liberal National MPs who are going to hit the fence uh, because they haven't carried out the relevant due diligence prior to nominating before the last election. This is in the uh, lower house. Force, in the lower house. This will force a string of by-elections, uh, probably in February or March. So it is possible that... Uh, faced with a couple of marginal seat MPs with potential marginal seat losses, that the only place for Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal coalition government to go is to a general election. So he could survive to the next election. It's just it could be a hell of a lot sooner than most people are predicting at the moment. Do you think that Labor... Uh, is a chance to win in uh, Benelong, where uh, Christina Keneally is up against John Alexander? Look, we've got a great candidate in Christina. She's got a high profile. She's well-known. Uh, and despite attempts to implicate her in the Eddie Obeid, uh sagas, uh, she's well-respected. But John Alexander is a good, strong local MP. He got a big swing to him in the last election. It's nearly a 10% margin. Uh, it wouldn't fall into that category I was described before as marginal. Uh, but Malcolm Turnbull uh, continues to have leaks from Cabinet, continues to have threats of crossing the floor, continues to have uh, threats of banking royal commissions supported by National Party MPs. So I think the air of chaos uh, around him, which is demonstrated again by significant leaks from inside his own Cabinet and conversations about how... Uh, there are leadership tickets being put together, whether it's the Bishop Dutton ticket or it's the Hunt Morrison ticket. Those sorts of conversations could be corrosive over the next uh, few weeks. And of course, we've got the Queensland state election. And if the Queensland Liberal Party do not win that, I think there will be 
major ramifications uh, in the federal Liberal Party about the state of uh, the federal coalition government. I mean, Stephen, politics in general seems to be particularly febrile at the moment. I mean, obviously, this, the citizenship thing is pretty uh, chaotic, but it's, it seems to be more like a black swan. It's come out of the blue sky in a way. Um, but, but what do you think is causing this sort of chaotic sense of politics at the moment? Well, I think it's been increasing over the last few years. People often say to me now, are you, are you missing it? It must be exciting. Uh, you know, you're, you're in opposition, you could be poised. And I say, no, I, I don't miss it at all. The, the nature of politics has become uh, quite lowest common denominator. And what I mean by that is that the 24-hour media cycle just absolutely creates a sense of panic around circumstances and they pile up and they pile up and they pile up uh, in a way that doesn't allow you to take a calm look at things. So the, the 24-hour media cycle has just increased the challenge. It's not, it's not the fault of the 24-hour media cycle. It just changes and intensifies the challenge in trying to deal with things as they come up. Uh, the economy is not responding. Go back to the basics. The economy is not responding in the way the Reserve Bank expects, the government expects. There is no wages increase. And what is causing the disillusionment, I think, out there in the broader community is that people are looking into the future and they're saying there is not going to be a wage rise for them. So that vast bulk of Australians who uh, are, just get their weekly pay packet, they're looking into the future and they're saying there is no prospect of any significant pay rise for me. And yet they then look at the issues around uh, electricity prices and other uh, charges, whether they be government charges or uh, or other price areas in the in, in prices, and they see them going up, and they think they're going to be worse off. That is a very very difficult situation for any government to face. You've got the ordinary Australians who feel they they're going backwards, and and basically there was a real wage fall. I mean, it's been a long time since there's been a real wage fall, but it's not like oh, it's a one off and suddenly it's bounced back. This is this is wage stagnation coupled with actual real wage falls and no prospect into the future. And that has created a very sullen electorate. They don't see that they're going to get ahead. And what's worse, which really is something that Australians care about, they don't see a great future for their kids. They don't see how they're going to get into the housing market. They don't see how their kids are going to be able to get a job that takes them forward and makes them better off. You know, we always say our mission is to put things in place so that our kids can do better than we did. Parents are looking into the future and not seeing that. And that has made an incredibly sullen electorate, which is a so challenge it, for politicians. I suppose in that context, it's not surprising that uh, Turnbull started talking about tax cuts this week. Absolutely. Um, I mean, if you, if you want to try and stimulate, uh, you know, consumer spending, you, you need either wage growth or you've got to put more money in people's pockets. Uh, now, how he marries that with the rhetoric that the coalition have had for five years, six years about, you know, the deficit's the greatest problem, the greatest challenge, debt's killing people, when he has no way to pay for these uh, tax cuts. He's got a $60 billion tax bill for big business. He's got a uh, who knows how much of a tax bill here. I mean, they can't marry the 
uh, rhetoric around debt and deficit and evil and the world's going to end, now want to throw more money out the windows uh, and try and put it in people's pockets. I'm joined now by Shane Oliver, the Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Well, Shane, uh, the market the all ordinaries is holding above 6,000, the ASX 200 holding just below it. So it looks looks reasonably solid at the moment, don't you think? I think it does. What uh, has happened there is that we've pushed up very strongly to that 6,000 level and broke through. But there was always a chance that having broken through a, a point in the market, which had proved to be resistance for many years, we might come back and retest it. And that's basically what's happened. And so far, so good. Um, the ASX 200 has fallen back below it, but it seems to be holding up reasonably well. Um, and of course, the All Lords is, is above that 6,000 level. Um, but basically, what's happening here, I think, is that uh, you, you've got this combination of pretty good conditions globally, um, some strength in commodity prices. Of course, that varies from day to day where that strength is, but generally speaking, commodity prices are reasonably solid, albeit well down from their highs a few years ago. Um, and at the same time, um, you've got this growth story coming through globally and ongoing low inflation, keeping central banks relatively benign, all of which is positive for global shares. And, of course, that's feeding through to our share market. So um, how positive is this story? We've got the economic situation we have at the moment, which is uh, growth, not, not booming growth, but reasonable growth with low inflation, which is obviously the opposite of stagflation, which is no growth and high inflation. We've got low growth and uh, sorry, low inflation and some growth. Is that is that a really positive situation for the markets? Well, I, I'd have to say it is. Um, I, I like to call it the sweet spot in the cycle. So it's that point in the cycle where growth expectations and actual economic growth are improving. Um, that's feeding through to stronger profits. But at the same time, because you've still got spare capacity, and of course at the moment a bunch of other things around technology feeding through to keep inflation low, um, central banks are benign. So you've got the best of both worlds, so to speak, stronger growth, stronger profits, but benign central banks. And that theme has been around for a while. Um, I guess it started to become uh, apparent uh, late last year globally and, and through this year, but it just seems to keep going on. You know, we, overnight, we get more good data out of the US, ongoing very low jobless claims, um, pretty good uh, durable goods orders, which augurs well for uh, business investment in the US, uh, consumer confidence you know, around their highest since the, the year 2000. So all of those things um, are pretty much the story day after day um, out of the US. But at the same time, um, the inflation story in the US remains pretty much benign, which keeps the Fed relatively gradual in raising interest rates. So that uh, sweet spot, I think, is very positive for investment markets. Um, the danger, of course, is that it pushes them up too far, that uh, you end up with this sense of complacency um, creeping in, uh, that investors think there's no risk, there's nothing to worry about at all, and you end up with some euphoria down the track. Now, I don't think we're there yet. Um, the US is probably further through that process than we are. But um, for the time being, it's a, it's a reasonably good combination for investment markets. And, and of course, that's flown through to Australia. The growth in Australia is nowhere near as good as it is uh, globally. Um, we are lagging. Our share market has lagged global performances this year. But as long as the sweet spot globally remains in place, then uh, that, that should continue to flow through 
for a reasonable trend for our share market. In fact, I saw a graph the other day showing that, um, which was a chart of the uh, relative price earnings ratio of Australia versus the rest of the world. And it was actually down to the lowest, according to this chart, the lowest uh, since, uh, since 2002, so, which, which suggests that the Australian market is quite cheap at the moment. It is on that basis. It is, and mind you, 2002 was the um, was the tail end of that period where we had the uh, the new economy, old economy thing. Australia went out of favour. Then, of course, we had the uh, the tech wreck, which uh, weighed on our market a bit as well. But um, after that period, the Aussie share market uh, took off. It took a little while before it became apparent, but by 2003, 2004, our market did take off. Is the same thing going to happen this time around? Probably not to the same degree because um, we, we're not staring down the down the, another uh, commodity boom like we saw last decade. But it does highlight that there are some opportunities in our market compared to other markets. For example, one of the uh, one of the favourite uh, indicators in recent years of share market valuation, apart from the Ford PE, is the so-called Schiller PE, sometimes called cyclically adjusted PE where you take current share prices and divide by a 10-year moving average of earnings. For the US, that uh, PE is uh, is around 30 times, which is well, well above its long-term average. In Australia, it's around 15 times, which I think is just below, actually below its long-term average. So it highlights there is value here in our market compared to, say, the US. Um, my personal view is that what's lacking in Australia is the growth story, and that's probably likely to linger for a while yet. So we're probably going to remain a relative underperformer for a while yet. But for those who want to take a punt, there are opportunities in the local market. And of course, it uh, continues to provide good income flow compared to what you're getting from uh, global shares. I'm joined now by Cameron Kusher, who's the head of research at CoreLogic, the property data firm. Now, Cameron, you. Uh you tweeted the other day that um, my namesake at the RBA, Marion Kohler, uh, did a cracking speech. What was so good about it? What did you learn? Well, there's just a lot of new information in there. So what we looked at was from the securitisation data, just uh, getting a much broader breakdown of what the outstanding loans look like, what their interest rates are. And it was a re- I found it to be a really interesting look at, uh, at the mortgage market and a perspective we don't often see. So what did you learn that you didn't already know? I mean, yeah, I get that it was informative, and, and I agree with you. It was There was plenty of very interesting data there, but was there anything there that surprised you? I think there were there were a few things that su- surprised me. Um, some of the uh, distribution of the current loan balances uh, between owner-occupiers and investors uh, in the RMBS pool. Uh, I, sus- I suspected there probably would have been uh, a bit more slant towards owner-occupiers than, uh, than what we've seen. Uh, also, the, the loan-to-valuation ratios in some of these RMBS pools as well. Uh, it was very encouraging to see that uh, most of it was uh, an LVR of 80% or lower. So, obviously, quite a bit uh, less risky in terms of the uh, the stock that's going uh, into these pools. And also, just the variation in the mortgage rates that people are paying. Um, obviously, we, we often get quoted the standard variable mortgage rate, but there's quite a lot of people uh, in these pools that were paying interest rates well in excess of the uh, standard variable mortgage rate. Yeah, that's right. And there was actually a surprisingly low number of 90% LVR mortgages, I thought, 90 to 95%. I thought I actually expected there to be more of those. I certainly did too, and I think it, it shows, obviously, 
the banks and the uh, and, and the securitizers being very choosy with the the um, actual mortgages that they are securitizing. But I think it also reflects the fact that we have seen that ongoing decline in higher LVR lending over probably the last two to three years. Now, just looking at the property market, um, CoreLogic put out the other day some data on uh, auction results, as they do each week. And um, it's quite interesting to see the difference between Melbourne and Sydney on the uh, auction clearance rates. Sydney is in a pronounced decline in auction clearance rates, but Melbourne is holding. Um, what, what, does, what, does that, what does that tell you about the markets, do you think? I think it shows you that they're, they're two very different markets at this point in time. Obviously, Sydney's been seeing a lot more activity from the investor segment, um, has got much higher prices, even though we have seen strong growth over recent years in Melbourne. Um, and I think the, the pullback in investors and just that stretched affordability is really starting to bite in the Sydney market. We've actually just got the latest data for this week, and it's looking like uh, the fourth consecutive week of clearance rates below 50%. looks like it's actually going to slip below 55% in Sydney this week. Uh, and then in terms of Melbourne, clearance rates are starting to slow a little bit, but obviously Melbourne's still got the advantage that it's seeing much stronger rates of population growth. Uh, it's also relatively more affordable than Sydney and got similar wages to what you get in Sydney um, so I think that the housing demand is definitely holding up a little bit stronger in Melbourne than it is in Sydney. Auction clearance rates tend also to be a forward-looking indicator to some extent, don't they? So I wonder what the uh, current situation in Sydney is telling you about prices in Sydney in the market in Sydney next year. Well, I think it, it, if we continue to see this downturn, and keep in mind that we do generally, as the uh, as the spring selling season progresses, we do tend to see a little bit of a dip in clearance rates most years, and that's largely because so much stock's coming up for sale. But the uh, downturn is certainly more pronounced than what we've seen over recent years, and I think it does point to further weakening in the Sydney housing market. Of course, we have seen values fall by about 0.6% from their peak, uh, and, and we do expect that there's going to be further declines in the Sydney market. In terms of Melbourne, things have slowed a little bit in that market as well, but certainly not to the same magnitude as Sydney. Uh, but our view is that we are going to see uh, slower levels of, of capital growth going forward in Melbourne. Is the fall from uh, peak in peak price in Sydney only 0.6%? I, th- I thought it was more than that. Is it only 0.6%? It's only 0.6% at this stage, but obviously it's only been falling for about three and a half, four months. So uh, we do think that that's going to gather some momentum through 2018, uh, particularly if we continue to see these uh, tight lending policies, fewer investors in the market, it's it's going to have an impact on that Sydney market. How much of an impact do you reckon? Well, if we look back to, say, 2004, 2005, we saw the Sydney market fall by about 10% and it pretty much tracked sideways for about five years. Um, if you look at Perth, you know, it, it had a big boom and then it, it's fallen and really hasn't recovered. It fell by about 10%, tracked sideways now for about seven or eight years. So the history suggests that what we're likely to see is a 4, 10, maybe a bit larger this time, maybe 15%, and then a period of, of pretty stagnant uh, housing market conditions where we're ne- neither seeing growth or, or seeing falls in the market. And that's probably our base, uh, base case scenario for Sydney over the next few years. And what's your base case scenario for Melbourne? Uh, for Melbourne, I think eventually we will start to see that, uh, that rate of growth slow like we have in Sydney. Uh, and potentially some falls coming into the future. I don't think they're going to be as dramatic as the falls that we can potentially see in Sydney. And and the large reason for that is that Melbourne is still 
uh, seeing really strong population growth, attracting a lot of people actually out of New South Wales, but also other parts of the country. And that's really fueling that ongoing demand for housing. And just the fact that the economy is still quite strong and affordability is much better than it is in Sydney. Joining me now is Professor Marianne Williams, who's currently with Stanford University in California. Marianne, I suppose from an investor's point of view, um, uh, it, it looks as if it's fairly a straightforward equation. And the question is whether it's a threat or an opportunity. And I wonder if you could uh, talk to that a bit. I mean, uh, it, it, to, to what extent does AI represent a threat to existing companies or an opportunity for them to reduce costs and to go into other areas, do you think? Well, I think it has to be both. I mean, you know, if uh, the opportunity of using AI is ignored uh, and companies don't kind of um, align with uh, that opportunity, then I think, you know, that is very problematic. But I think most companies today recognize that opportunity and uh, trying to find ways to, um, you know, uh, get more AI into their um, decision making and into their sort of uh, business um, value sort of proposition. And, um, you know, there's a lot of companies are acquiring other companies to get their hands on data, which they think is going to sort of um, add value to what they can already do. And um, just this year, you know, corporate. Um, Venture capital has uh, surpassed in institutional venture capital uh, because big corporates are chasing the technologies and, in particular, the data. So yeah, I read my answer is it's a huge, huge opportunity. Huge opportunity. Yeah. Now, how individual investors manage this and are you know tap into the information that they need to you know find the places for good investment? I, I think that is probably difficult. I suppose part of the threat uh, story has to do with the companies that have the data and the cash, such as Facebook and Google, um, seem to be dominating in AI. And um, those companies that don't have the data and the um, and perhaps the cash uh, potentially get left behind. Is that an oversimplistic? Is that yeah. an oversimplistic way to look at it? Uh, no, I think uh, you know the, the com- those companies, the big five, they're called. Um, they more or less have a monopoly uh, on the data. I mean, they know more about Australian citizens than our own government, for example. So, uh, and and they use it uh, to, uh, well, mainly battle amongst themselves in a way uh, because they all are sort of trying to dominate uh, the same kind of space, which is the, uh, you know, the B2B and the, B, the B2C. They want it all. And the path to it is uh, through data. And so that's what they're doing. And, uh, you know, Google have a venture fund. Uh, They've invested more than any other company in uh, acquiring new companies and new sources of of data. Is that right? uh, So, I mean, would you say that Google is the, I mean, in fact, I've read some of it and that they they are leading in AI. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the companies that they uh, acquired in the last few years is a British firm called DeepMind. And DeepMind is the company that developed a new 
breed of um, AI algorithms that uh, have beat, you know, the world champions at um, the game of Go. And Go is a game that is much more complicated than chess, for example. And uh, the first time they did it, they actually analyzed, you know, hundreds of thousands of actual games of Go. Uh, but recently, um, just a few months ago, they developed a whole new system that didn't even require any data. The system taught itself from first principles, and it basically played against itself. So it was creating its own data as it played. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is very, very new and very, very exciting from a scientific point of view. Um, but in a way, it's, it does raise the concerns around uh, what AI can do and um, the kinds of implications for society. Uh, in fact, it's quite scary. That That's astonishing. I didn't realise that. So that, so that uh, the computer is not using past games, the data of past games, to learn how to play Go. It's just teaching itself. Absolutely. And it beat uh, the previous version that was using data. You know, data's messy. Data, you know, isn't always... Um, accurate it can be biased so you know there are lots of advantages for not using data um and uh, you know i think this is a, a a paradigm shift in what ai can do i mean it's not uh singularity or anything like that but i think what is interesting is it's uh kind of minimized the value of data now and let's not forget that the data we mostly have is historical so we know the future isn't like the past. So having systems that can, you know, essentially play games, experiment, and find new ways of doing things are particularly valuable. So, you know, if I was an investor, I would be looking at companies that are using these new methods. But do you think we're starting to enter a post-data AI world? No, simply because of the, you know, the maturity curve. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the kinds of algorithms and techniques that are sort of very mainstream now are quite old. Uh, it takes a, a long time, you know, a decade, sometimes more, for these uh, sort of uh, brand new frontier kinds of techniques to become mainstream. But the growth is in getting in early. Uh, you know, it's a bit like um, cryptocurrencies. Uh, so, you know, it took a little while, quite a long while, for Bitcoin to, to get moving. Uh, but now, you know, there's obviously a massive amount of investment in the in that space. And uh, people are thinking, you know, this is only the beginning. Um, if, if you were investing in AI, and perhaps you are, I don't know, but, but, but if, you were, if you were advising investors, would you just say go all in on Google since they're the ones in the lead? Uh, no, that would be poor advice. You know, you've got to have a sort of a mixed portfolio. I mean, uh, 20 years ago, uh, you would have invested in Microsoft and that would have been a dumb idea. So, you know, they missed the internet, they've missed mobile. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't think, I think looking at maybe where the venture capital is going into startups, that's much a much better indicator picking winners is difficult but uh, there's quite a bit of intelligence um, you know available on the uh, web because uh, some you know these companies do have to divulge some information in order to find investment 
But it is more and more difficult because uh, companies, certainly in Silicon Valley, are remaining private. So we're seeing less and less uh, sort of public information or um, available that, you know, would inform you. But um, I, I think there's still plenty out there that, uh, you know, can help to guide where there are good investments. But I think it's hard in Australia. Um, there's a lot more information, inverted commas, uh, here in Silicon Valley, you know, just people just, you know, chatting, talking, every meeting you go to, you, you're, you're either hearing the same company mentioned over and over or, um, you know, which is, tends to um, amplify interest and you can kind of gauge where, you know, most people expect, you know, the action to be in the future. I remember um, the uh, chief engineer of Google came out to Australia last year and made a speech in which he said to, it was a speech to businesses, um, and he said uh, he thought, I think that um, all Australian businesses should have at least one person on their staff who's focusing on AI. And I thought, God. Absolutely. <laughs> one person, you know, really, that's all. That's all. <laughs> Half of Google is focused on AI, not just one person. Uh, well, that's true, and and Australia. I think he he was, um, I guess, just trying to be encouraging because if he said ten, you know, we wouldn't be able to find that many people, you know, trained in the the art of AI. So uh, I think Australia's got a lot of catching up to do, and I think this is becoming increasingly urgent um, because you know I think it's very clear that you know this is the the future. This is where the game will be played. And we are very short on ex expertise. Uh, we need to have more AI programs uh, in schools and in universities and a lot more people um, signing up and, and, and doing these programs. But it, it's got to start early as well. Happy birthday, Tina Turner, who turned 78, would you believe, this Sunday. And here's one of her best. The best. That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing hello at theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week.